Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and his shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. As we have, have looked at this section in the book of Ephesians, um, we kind of walked through... The, the, the armor of the Lord that, that Paul was looking at, and we, we talked about having fastened the belt of truth, and what that meant was being prepared and ready to go, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and we talked about pr- protecting ourselves uh, from, from what the enemy's going to attack us with by the way that we live our lives, the way that we, 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 we work through things. And that, that, again, this is God's armor. It's His righteousness. And we talked about that righteousness being imputed to us and what that means. We talked about the shoes of our feet, having the readiness given by the gospel of peace. And we, we looked at how uh, without proper footwear, uh, we are in, in danger. And we looked at the sword of the Spirit. Uh, I'm sorry, the shield of faith, with, um, and talked about that and how the enemy is going to attack. We're going to have those flaming darts, and that shield uh, is important. It's not only important for us, but it also protects the man to your right and the man to your left, um, and how important the, the, the shield of, of uh, the uh, faith is. And last week we looked at the, uh, the helmet of salvation, how we protect our head, and we protect... Uh, what goes into our mind, and that it's the salvation of God that is what actually protects us. And tonight, we're looking at the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Paul leaves no ambiguity about what exactly he's referring to as the sword of the Spirit. Now, I, I brought a couple of props in tonight to show you. When I first read sword, this is the something that I think of. It's uh, uh, there, And there is a, there are two Greek words that are used in the New Testament for sword, and one is a long sword, that would, a broad sword, if you will, that's used to cut and slash and it's an offensive weapon. This is what we normally think of when we read the sword of the Spirit. This is my, my Marine Corps sword, um, and, and I, it's a saber. This is what we think of, and that is not the word that Paul uses. So the whole time, whenever we, we've thought about it, we've been thinking of it incorrectly. There's another word for sword that, that is in the New Testament, and it's the one that Paul uses in this case that's for a short uh, 6 inches to 18 inch long leaf-shaped kind of sword, and it was used in hand-to-hand combat, and it is more along the lines of this. 
that this is what it was talking about. Something that would be used if you were face-to-face with a person. Not something that would be used where you could reach out and touch somebody. And so that little short sword was the Roman soldier's primary tool. Just like the Marine K-Bar. It was a weapon that was used to, uh, as, to, from everything from pounding tent stakes in the ground to, to digging stuff up. It was a tool that was not pretty. It was not fancy. It had a singular purpose. And it was kept sharp and it was used. If you were in that fight that we saw the, the video of where those shields interlocked and somebody got through, that was the, short, the, the, the weapon that you would use to stick them. And that is what Paul is, is talking about, that, that little sword. So the same principles that we talked about with the shield and how our, the faith that we have overlaps with the people around us and how important it is for us as believers to be around each other because we need to feed off of each other's faith, that would also apply here in that that little short sword would have protected the people around us. And if the sword that we're talking about here, Paul quickly defines what that is, and that's God's Word, we see that that's something that we need into each other's life. Today, uh, on the news, we've read of two different high-profile Christians who have fallen, who have embarrassed the faith, um, and I, I frequently get asked, why do you think that it is that, that, uh, that, that pastors so often have moral failures. And I, I will you know, usually give the disclaimer that I think that in any field, if you get a group of human beings together, some of them are going to fail. It, it, you know, it, do we look at what the, the rate of, of uh, sexual issues is among plumbers? No, we don't. But I'm sure that it would be just as high percentage-wise as among pastors, which should remind us that people who are in ministry are human, which is something that we often forget. I, I shared from the pulpit how when I was asked to preach to uh, a group of pastors at the Edouard Baptist Association, my sermon text was Romans chapter 3, which says that they have all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. They've together gone out of their way. They're, they're, there's none righteous, no, not one. And I looked at the pastors and said, men, this is not talking about them. This is talking about us. We're fallen. We're no less fallen than anybody else. And the moment that we think we're so spiritual that we don't need anybody, that's the moment that you need to be ready. You're going to fail. And what often happens in church life is that the pastor is placed on this pedestal where people think that they don't struggle with anything spiritually, and so there's nobody in their life to hold them accountable, and there's nobody in their life to speak truth into their lives. I need you people to be honest and real with me. I don't, I I am no less likely to fall than you are. And it's easy for us to look at the news and go, oh, well, that's, I can't believe that guy did that. That guy's disgusting. And what we should do is look at that and go, see how strong the enemy that fights against us is. And we fall not on the moment when we do some horrific sin, but in little steps along the way. We've talked about this as we've talked about spiritual warfare. The enemy is not stupid. 
The enemy is not going to tempt me tonight when I walk out the door by somebody trying to sell me black tar heroin. Because that's not something I'm going to be tempted with. The enemy's going to tempt me to be arrogant. The enemy's going to tempt me to, to think that I'm too good to carry the trash out. And I use that example on, on purpose. It's easy, and I've known people in ministry who have gotten to a point to where they thought, well, somebody else needs to take care of that because I'm too good to do this thing or that thing. If somebody was in a person's life when they get to that point and they looked them in the face and said, that's stupid, you ain't too good to take out the trash, go get your lazy honey out there and take the trash out. If somebody could speak truth into their life and could quote the Bible to them, pride goes before a fall, my brother, I love you, but you need to get your act together, then that protects him. That pr- protects that pastor. And in, in our situation, what we're talking about here in the church, we need each other speaking the Bible into each other's lives. Oftentimes, when I finish a sermon, I'll have someone say something to me along the lines of, uh, are you sure we're picking on me? Or, or man, that, that... And you know what? The reality is, that if I'm being faithful to God's Word, it ain't me. Now, if I'm taking pop shots and being a loser from the pulpit, then all y'all need to deal with that in a different way. But if I'm preaching the Bible, and you're sitting there going, ah, man, that hurts, that's pulling something out, then that's God's Word that's convicting us. Because what the Bible tells us that God's Word does is that it's quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. When I pick the Bible up and read it, I'll read things and go, um... It convicts and it separates so that, you know what, it's, it's easy to fake people out that you're around sometimes. It's easy to give off the impression that you've got it all together. But you know where you are in your heart and as you read God's word, it will cut you. I will t- t- tell you that I, I have tried to have the discipline in my life and you know, I, somebody told me this when I was in high school, Mike Davis uh, got us when I was in high school to start saying, well, so today is the 10th, so today I read Proverbs chapter 10. And I've done that off and on for, for most of my life, that whatever day of the month it is, I'll read that, that proverb. And I will tell you, I don't care who you are. If you start reading in the book of Proverbs, it will get you where you live. It will convict you. Because it points out the wickedness that is naturally residing in our heart. And there have been lots of times when I've just finished thinking to myself, I can't even believe that person would even da-da-da-da and sit down and what I got on my list, okay, and I flop open the book of Proverbs and all of a sudden it's as if God himself is sitting in the room going, really? (laughs) Really? (laughs) You think so? And God's Word is that way. And it never fails. I don't care what it is in the Bible. It it never gets old. It never gets to the point to where it doesn't convict and draw. The problem that we have with the Bible is that the enemy is smart enough to make us ignore it. And oftentimes, we sacrifice our time with the Bible for good stuff. The enemy, again, is not stupid. If we let dust collect on our Bibles, 
You will, as a believer, fail. I, I, I know it sounds cheesy. I know it sounds trite. But every year when we have seniors that graduate from high school, uh, I, I, we, we as a church give them a Bible. And I write the same thing every year that somebody wrote in a Bible that they gave me when I was 9 or 10 years old. Simply, sin will keep you from this book or this book will keep you from sin. And so Paul is saying that our primary defense, our if you've ever read any of the stories about the, the Marines and, the, and how important that K-bar was on Guadalcanal, when people snuck through the lines, when it seemed like everything was going to fail, that sharp edge was there. And God's Word will not fail you. It is a comfort. It is a conviction. And again, we need it from each other. Now, we have mechanisms in place for that where... Uh, I try, try as the pastor to go as a not as a teacher, not as a as a just a Joe guy in the room to a Sunday school class every Sunday, because I need to be hearing God's word directed at me. Because one of the ways that the enemy is going to attack me is when I start reading God's word as, a, as sermon preparation or lesson preparation. The one of the ways that God's going to attack you is to come up with some other way for us to look at God's Word instead of asking ourselves the question, how does my life change in the light of this text? There's lots of ways that the enemy can get us to, to, if we take the time to read God's Word, to forget that we're supposed to be reading God's Word and saying, how is Tom Harrison supposed to live his life differently because this book says these words? And so, if we honestly stop and ask ourselves that question of God's Word, God will not. God will not fail to answer that prayer. I have never in my life had God's Word fail to speak to me. It's a balm. It's a convictor. It's crazy. There's no other book like it where when I have been absolutely destroyed in a circumstance... That I can sit down and read God's Word and it just soothes. And again, it convicts, it draws. It is the tool that we need and we need it for each other. And I fear, and I, I, I said this a few weeks ago, that the reason why in our society... The church is so weak. I think there are two things that are missing from the church. One is we don't know how to pray. We're going to start talking about that next week. We don't pray. We, we know how to make our petitions made known to God. We know how to ask for stuff, but we don't know how to commune with our God. And two, we leave God's Word unread and unstudied. See, there's a difference in reading God's Word for devotional time and studying God's Word. When we study God's Word, we have to understand what the author was trying to say. When I first started, the, to, let me use an example that we've, we've all heard. In, okay, so in Romans 8.28, it says, 
All things work together for the good to them that love him, to those who are the called according to his purpose. And so if you reach into the letter that Paul wrote to the book of Romans and take that verse out, it would imply that it, God is saying that everything's going to work out for you in the end. That you're all, no matter what happens, that at the end of the day, you're, you're gonna, everything's going to be just the way that you want it to be. But if you look at the book of Romans and look at it and, and read it like a letter, Romans starts out talking about how humanity has no hope outside of God. There's nothing that we can do to earn favor with God. And so the arc of the book of Romans is Paul teaching the the church in Rome how to get, how to attain the righteousness of God. Romans 1 starts out and says, you can't on your own. Romans 1 through 3 establishes that religion's not going to do it. Judaism's not going to do it. You're not going to be able to do it on your own. There's nothing that you can do. And Paul works his way through that. And then he talks about how our own conscience condemns us in what we do. And then he gets into Romans chapter 5, and he talks about how we have to be freed from sin. And that the only way to do that is through the grace of God. He goes so far as to say, where grace abounds, I mean, where sin abounds, grace does so much more abound. And almost anticipating that somebody would think to themselves, well, that means that I need to sin a lot. So if we're grace abounds, sin abounds, I'm going to keep on sinning so that grace will abound, right? Romans chapter 6, he addresses that very question. What do we say then? Do we continue sinning that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we who are dead to sin continue living in it? Don't you know that so many of us as we're baptized into Jesus Christ, we're baptized into his death, that like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. That we have got to walk out the faith that he's given us. That 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 means a day-to-day work. And then he works all the way through the book of Romans. In fact, the first in all of the book of Romans, there's not one command, not one imperative until you get to Romans 6, like 14, where he says to consider yourselves dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ their Lord. So the first command in the book of Romans is to think of yourself as dead to everything sinful. He gets to the end of chapter 6, and it's almost like he can anticipate somebody saying, so if I do it just right, I can just stop sinning. And he goes, no, I don't think so. In fact, he gives his own life. He says, the thing that I would do, I don't do. And the very thing that I don't want to do, I do. That sin reigns in my mortal body. Oh, who will deliver me from this body of flesh? That there's nothing in our body good. And that God has has put us in a situation where on this earth we are desperately dependent on Him to do the walk that He was talking about in Romans chapter 6. And then anticipating the fact as He gets into Romans chapter 8 that the average Christian is going to read that and say, well, there's no hope. I'm just crushed under the condemnation of God. He starts out with Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That God is not going to let you wallow out there if you're a Christian just doing whatever you want to do and not be sovereign over your sanctification. And so as he works through Romans chapter 8, he's describing how God is working so that you become transformed into the image of God. And he says in Romans 8.28, 
that all things work together for the good to those who are called. And he then goes on to say, for those whom he called, he predestined to be transformed into the image of Christ. He's not saying that it's going to all work out so that we get a new truck and a pony, but that everything's going to work out to make us more like Jesus. In fact, quite frequently that means that you don't get what you want. And at the end of the day, it's exactly the opposite of what you thought it was going to be. But God has changed who you are to the point to where you say, Praise Jesus, I've got him and that's all I needed. And so that shift and change in that work is not in our outside circumstances, but in who, what he's doing in the work that he's doing through you to change you and transform you into the image of his son. So that verse is not saying to us, well, everything's going to work out. Just hang in there, buddy. The opposite of that is actually being said. That God is on purpose going to mold you, and that's going to be ripping and tearing and changing and working so that you get transformed into the image of Christ. And that's all going to work out so that someday, you, in this present life, we are being transformed bit by bit by bit. But on that moment, we will be like Him because we will see Him as He is. And so as He continues to work through the book of Romans, He then gets into the practical application of what that looks like every day. The only way you can know that is not by reaching in and taking one verse and pulling it out of its context and trying to apply it. The way you get that is by studying and working. And that that requires time. And that requires discipline. And God's Word is something that you know, I, I, I know people who have come to talk to me and they say that the way that they read God's Word is that they open it up and then, then this is the verse that I'm going to read today. And I say, okay, if I walked into Johnson's and twirled around and grabbed something off the shelf, it would probably keep me from starving to death, whatever I grabbed. But that's probably not the broadest way for me to make a meal. You can do that. And you will, occasionally God's going to meet a need there and you're going to occasionally get a little snack to eat. You might look up, grab some Reese cups or something that's, that's good. But that, that's not how you can sustain yourself. And so I su- would suggest that you as a believer, pick a book of the Bible, park in it for a while. I will say that as I, when I prepare to preach or prepare to teach or I'm studying a book of the Bible, what I always do is I will go um, get and print out a copy of that text without the chapter and verse breaks. And for several weeks, I will, once, uh, I will keep that folded up in my pocket, and it's crazy how often, um, like I said, the book of Ephesians will fit on, uh, at, with 11-point font, will fit on an 8.5 by 11 piece of paper, the whole letter. So I can fold that up, stick it in my pocket, and if I'm, whenever I get some dead time, I'll read it. I try at least once a week to read the whole letter in one sitting. And it has amazed me how after about three or four weeks of of reading through the book once a day, and at least once a week trying to read it in one sitting, how that book will open up to me. In fact, everybody on staff or anybody that I'm close to will know what book of the Bible I'm studying because I get goggles from that book. No matter what question, hey man, uh, you know Galatians speaks to that. And then, you know, something else comes up. Hey, did you know Galatians 5 says something exactly to that situation? And they'll tell me, I'm so studying in Galatians, huh? 
It's like, I just, I really need to know, you know, what software we're going to use to check the kids in. I don't think Galatians speaks to that. Could you please? Because I get these goggles and everything I see, I see through the lens of that book. And as I read it over and over and over again for those days, I can, can kind of see that arc that we were just talking about in the book of Romans, the way that the writer is laying it out. And you can see then if somebody does throw a verse out there at you, hey, it says this, you can know where that fits into what the writer is saying. It's so much richer than just getting a my daily bread and reading a little bitty passage of, of, of text and then a big paragraph or two about what somebody else says about it. I'm not saying that there's no value in those. What I'm saying is there's so much better in just attacking God's word, approaching it and saying, I'm going to learn what this book has to say to me. And then I ask that same critical question. How does my life change in the light of this book? So as I've studied the book of Galatians, after I figured out what Paul was trying to say to the church in Galatians, then the question I started asking myself was, how does this apply to me? I let the text beat me up. And then I said, how does this text apply to the people of North Linco and our culture and our society? And how, when I, as I preach it or teach it, how does that work? And so you can do the same thing. You can ask, how does it apply to me? How does it apply to my family? As I'm speaking into the lives of my children and my grandchildren, how does this apply to them? And then we, we sow truth as we go. We have access to words that God himself gave you. And so often we leave it gathering dust on the coffee table or uh, on the visor. I wanted to close by reading um, a little a little tribute to scripture that I've always liked. There are words written by kings, by emperors, by princes, by poets, by sages, by philosophers, by fishermen, by statesmen, by men learned in the wisdom of Egypt, educated in the schools of Babylon, and trained at the feet of rabbis in Jerusalem. It was written by men in exile, in the desert, in shepherd's tents, in green pastures and beside still waters. Among its authors, we find tax collectors, a herdsman, a gatherer of sycamore fruit. We find poor men, rich men, statesmen, preachers, captains, legislators, judges, and exiles. The Bible is a library full of history, genealogy, ethnology, law, ethics, prophecy, poetry, eloquence, medicine, sanitary science, political economy, and the perfect rules for personal and social life. And behind every word we read is the divine author, God himself. That's the sword that you have. As we talk about angels and demons and realize that we're in a spiritual warfare, the greatest tool you have for your day-to-day fight is that book. Father God, Lord, we thank you that you gave us your word. Lord, I pray that we never cease to be awed by Hebrews 1.1, God spoke. And God, I pray that we run to your word, that we learn from your word, that we live out your word. That at times we're crushed under the weight of your word. And that we're healed by your word. 
Lord, forgive us for how often we've read things about your word and failed to read your word. Lord, give us a hunger. Lord, in this church, make us hungry for your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.